0: Hi everyone, my name is Otis Gray and you're listening to Sleepy, a podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep. If you are a longtime listener of the show, then you're probably wondering uh, what this music is and why it's different than our usual intro music. Well, this is um, the music of a wonderful, wonderful artist that I met. And her name is Rebecca L. Salah. She goes by RBKE. And the story is, uh, I was in Greenpoint in Brooklyn uh, in a bar with a friend. And we were just sitting and having a drink. And all of a sudden, this amazing harpist starts playing in the bar. Really, really beautiful music and it belongs to this woman uh who goes by the name rbke and i immediately thought wow this woman's playing is something my listeners would absolutely love so i went up to her in the bar afterwards and i uh told her i would love to promote her music on the show so this was a couple months ago and now i am really happy to promote her music on the show um Because as times with uh, coronavirus are a little crazy, Rebecca, like a lot of people, and maybe like you listening, don't really know where uh, their steady income is going to be coming from for the next foreseeable future. Uh, I know a lot of people, my friends, are musicians and producers and uh, people who work in the service industry, and work has been put on hold for a little bit, and that's really tough, so now more than ever if you can spare it is a really good time to support really talented people like Rebecca and their independent work by purchasing the awesome things that they make so Rebecca just came out with a new little album called Breakthrough Arrive Here which you can find at rbke.bandcamp.com don't worry I will put the link in the description of this show Uh, it's a four song album it's so nice and uh, it's really good music and it's also great to fall asleep to if you'd like she is unbelievably talented um, and I just want to support her on the show regardless of Corona because she is uh, a very inspiring artist so if you'd like to support an independent artist um, during these tough times and also get some really really amazing music out of it Go download her album, Breakthrough, Arrive Here, at www.rbke.bandcamp.com. Thank you so, so much, Rebecca, for letting me use your music uh, in the intro to our show. You're awesome. I would also like to take a second to thank uh, all of our new patrons on Patreon.com Katie Much, Kylie Price, Mickey Jefferson, Beverly Wright, Max McCabe, Emma Gardner, Kathleen E. Gus, Rebecca Carpita, Elise Cooper, and Douglas Romizer. Thank you all so, so much for supporting the show and donating on Patreon.com. And for anyone who doesn't know, these are all supporters on Patreon.com slash Sleepy Radio. And they give monthly pledges to the show. um, So they're directly a part of making it. If you would also like to be a part of making the show and have your name read in the uh, opening credits of the next show after you donate, just go to Patreon.com slash Sleepy Radio. Thank you. I'm going to get right to the story that we're reading tonight. Um, And if you have been listening to the show for a while, you know that I love reading stories by Nathaniel Hawthorne, um, especially his telling of Greek myths. So tonight, I'm going to be reading his writing uh, of the story of Perseus and the Gorgon Medusa. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed, get real comfortable, close your eyes, and let me read to you. Perseus was the son of Danae who was the daughter of a king. When Perseus was a very little boy, some wicked people put his mother and himself into a chest and set them afloat upon the sea. The wind blew freshly and drove the chest away from the shore, and the uneasy billows tossed it up and down, while Danae clasped her child closely to her bosom and dreaded that some big wave would dash its foamy crest over them both. The chest sailed on, however, and neither sank nor was upset, until, when night was coming, it floated so near an island that it got entangled in a fisherman's net and was drawn out high and dry upon the sand. The island was called Serapis, and it was reigned over by a king Polydectes, who happened to be the fisherman's brother. This fisherman, I am glad to tell you, was an exceedingly humane and upright man. He showed great kindness to Danae and her little boy and continued to befriend them until Perseus had grown to be a handsome youth, very strong and active and skillful in the use of arms. Long before this time, King Polydectes had seen the two strangers, the mother and her child, who had come to his dominions in a floating chest. As he was not good and kind like his brother, the fisherman, but extremely wicked,
1: he resolved
0: to send Perseus on a dangerous enterprise in which he would probably be killed, and then to do some great mischief to Dene herself, so that this bad-hearted king spent a long while in considering what was the most dangerous thing that a young man could possibly undertake to perform. At last, Having hit upon an enterprise that promised to turn out as fatally as he desired, he sent for the youthful Perseus. The young man came to the palace and found the king sitting upon his throne. Perseus said King Polydectes, smiling craftily upon him, You are grown up a fine young man. You and your good mother have received a great deal of kindness from myself as well as from my worthy brother, the fisherman, and I suppose you would not be so sorry to repay some of it. Please, your majesty, answered Perseus, I would willingly risk my life to do so. Well then, continued the king, still with a cunning smile on his lips, I have a little adventure to propose to you and as you are a brave and enterprising youth, you will doubtless look upon it as a great piece of good luck to have so rare an opportunity of distinguishing yourself. You must know, my good Perseus, I think of getting married to the beautiful princess Hippodamia, and it is customary on these occasions to make the bride a present of some far-fetched and elegant curiosity. I have been a little perplexed, I must honestly confess where to obtain anything likely to please a princess of her exquisite taste but this morning I flatter myself I have thought of precisely the article and can I assist your majesty in obtaining it cried Perseus eagerly you can if you are as brave a youth as I believe you to be replied King Polydectes with the utmost graciousness of manner The bridal gift, which I set my heart on presenting to the beautiful Hippodamia, is the head of the Gorgon Medusa with the snaky locks, and I depend on you, my dear Perseus, to bring it to me. So, as I am anxious to settle affairs with the princess, the sooner you go in quest of the Gorgon, the better I shall be pleased. I will set out tomorrow morning, answered Perseus, Pray do so, my gallant youth, rejoined the king. And Perseus, in cutting off the gorgon's head, be careful to make a clean stroke so as not to injure its appearance. You must bring a home in the very best condition in order to suit the exquisite taste of the beautiful princess Hippodamia. Perseus left the palace but was scarcely out of hearing before Polydectes burst into a laugh, being greatly amused, wicked king that he was, to find how readily the young man fell into the snare. The news quickly spread that Perseus had undertaken to cut off the head of Medusa with the snaky locks. Everybody was rejoiced, for most of the inhabitants of the island were as wicked as the king himself and would have liked nothing better than to see some enormous mischief happen to Denae and her son. The only good man in this unfortunate island of Serapis appears to have been the fisherman. As Perseus walked along, therefore, the people pointed after him and made mouths and winked to one another and ridiculed him loudly as they dared. Ho, ho, cried they, Medusa's snakes will sting him soundly Now there were three gorgons alive at that period And they were the most strange and terrible monsters That had ever been seen since the world was made Or that have been seen in after days Or that are likely to be seen in all time to come I hardly know what sort of creature or or hobgoblin to call them They were three sisters and seemed to have borne some distant resemblance to women, but were really a frightful and mischievous species of dragon. It is indeed difficult to imagine what hideous beings these three sisters were. Why, instead of locks of hair, if you can believe me, they had each of them a hundred enormous snakes, growing on their heads all alive, twisting, wriggling, curling, and thrusting out their venomous tongues with forked stings at the end. The teeth of the gorgons were terribly long tusks. Their hands were made of brass, and their bodies were all over scales, which, if not iron, were something as hard and impenetrable. They had wings, too, and exceedingly splendid ones, I can assure you, for every feather in them was pure, bright, glittering, burnished gold, And they looked very dazzling, no doubt, when the gorgons were flying about in the sunshine. But when people happened to catch a glimpse of their glittering brightness aloft in the air, they seldom stopped to gaze, but ran and hid themselves as speedily as they could. You will think, perhaps, that they were afraid of being stung by the serpents that served the gorgons instead of hair or of having their heads bitten off by their ugly tusks, or being torn all to pieces by their brazen claws. Well, to be sure, these were some of the dangers, but by no means the greatest, nor the most difficult to avoid. For the worst thing about these abominable gorgons was that, if once a poor mortal fixed his eyes full upon one of their faces, he was certain that very instant, to be changed from warm flesh and blood into cold and lifeless stone. Thus, as you will easily perceive, it was a very dangerous adventure that the wicked king Polydectes had contrived for this innocent young man. Perseus himself, when he had thought over the matter, could not help seeing that he had very little chance of coming safely through it and that he was far more likely to become a stone image than to bring back the head of Medusa with the snaky locks. For not to speak of other difficulties, there was one which it would have puzzled an older man than Perseus to get over. Not only must he fight and slay this golden-winged, iron-scaled, long-tusked, brazen-clawed, snaky haired monster, but he must do it with his eyes shut or at least without so much as a glance at the enemy with whom he was contending. Else, while his arm was lifted to strike, he would stiffen into stone and stand with that uplifted arm for centuries until time and the wind and weather should crumble him quite away. This would be a very sad thing to befall a young man who wanted to perform a great many brave deeds and to enjoy a great deal of happiness in this bright and beautiful world. So disconsolate did these thoughts make him that Perseus could not bear to tell his mother what he had undertaken to do. He therefore took his shield, girded on his sword, and crossed over from the island to the mainland, where he sat down in a solitary place and hardly refrained from shedding tears. But while he was in this sorrowful mood, he heard a voice close behind him. Perseus said the voice, why are you sad? He lifted his head from his hands, in which he had hidden, and behold, all alone as Perseus had supposed himself to be, there was a stranger in the solitary place. It was a brisk, intelligent, and remarkably shrewd-looking young man, with a cloak over his shoulders and an odd sort of cap on his head, a strangely twisted staff in his hand, and a short and very crooked sword hanging by his side. He was exceedingly light and active in his figure, like a person much accustomed to gymnastic exercises and well able to leap or run. Above all, the stranger had such a cheerful, knowing, and helpful aspect though it was certainly a little mischievous into the bargain that Perseus could not help feeling his spirits grow livelier as he gazed at him. Besides, being a really courageous youth, he felt greatly ashamed that anybody should have found him with tears in his eyes, like a timid little schoolboy, when after all, there might be no occasion for despair. So Perseus wiped his eyes, and answered the stranger pretty briskly, putting on as brave a look as he could. "'I am not so very sad,' said he, "'only thoughtful about an adventure that I have undertaken.' "'Oh,' answered the stranger. "'Well, tell me all about it, and possibly I may be of service to you. "'I have helped a good many young men through adventures that looked difficult enough beforehand.' Perhaps you have heard of me. I have more names than one, but the name of Quicksilver suits me as well as any other. Tell me what the trouble is, and we will talk the matter over and see what can be done. The stranger's words and manner put Perseus into a quite different mood from his former one. He resolved to tell Quicksilver all his difficulties, since he could not easily be worse off than he already was and very possibly his new friend might give him some advice that would turn out well in the end. So, he let the stranger know, in few words, precisely what the case was, how that King Polydectes wanted the head of Medusa with the snaky locks as a bridal gift for the beautiful Princess Hippodamia, and how that he had undertaken to get it for him, but was afraid of being turned into stone. And that would be a great pity, said Quicksilver, with his mischievous smile. You would make a very handsome marble statue, it is true, and it would be a very considerable number of centuries before you crumbled away. But on the whole, one would rather be a young man for a few years, than a stone image for a great many. Oh, far rather, exclaimed Perseus, with the tears again standing in his eyes. And besides, what would my dear mother do if her beloved son were turned into a stone? Well, well, let us hope that the affair will not turn out so very badly, replied Quicksilver in an encouraging tone. I am the very person to help you if anybody can. My sister and myself will do our utmost to bring you safe through the adventure, ugly as now it looks. Your sister, repeated Perseus. Yes, my sister, said the stranger. She is very wise, I promise you. And as for myself, I generally have all my wits about me, such as they are. If you show yourself bold and cautious and follow our advice, you need not fear being a stone image yet a while. But first of all, you must polish your shield you can see your face in it as distinctly as in a mirror. This seemed to Perseus rather an odd beginning of the adventure, for he thought it of more consequence that the shield should be strong enough to defend him from the gorgon's brazen claws than that it should be bright enough to show the reflection of his face. However, concluding that Quicksilver knew better than himself, he immediately set to work and scrubbed the shield with so much diligence and goodwill that it very quickly shone like the moon at harvest time. Quicksilver looked at it with a smile, and nodded his approbation. Then, taking off his own short and crooked sword, he girded it about Perseus, instead of the one which he had before worn. No sword but mine will answer your purpose, observed he, The blade has a most excellent temper and will cut through iron and brass as easily as through the slenderest twig. And now we will set out. The next thing is to find the three grey women who will tell us where to find the nymphs. The three grey women, cried Perseus, to whom this seemed only a new difficulty in the path of his adventure. Pray, who may the three grey women be? I never heard of them before. They are three very strange old ladies, said Quicksilver, laughing. They have but one eye among them, and only one tooth. Moreover, you must find them out by starlight, or in the dusk of the evening, for they never show themselves by the light either of the sun or moon. But, said Perseus, why should I waste my time with these three grey women? Would it not be better to set out at once in search of the terrible gorgons? No, no, answered his friend. There are other things to be done before you can find your way to the gorgons. There is nothing for it but to hunt up these old ladies, and when we meet with them, you may be sure that the gorgons are not a great way off. Come, let us be stirring. Perseus, by this time, felt so much confidence in his companion's sagacity that he made no more objections and professed himself ready to begin the adventure immediately. They accordingly set out and walked at a brisk pace, so brisk indeed that Perseus found it rather difficult to keep up with his nimble friend Quicksilver. To say the truth, he had a singular idea that Quicksilver was furnished with a pair of winged shoes, which, of course, helped him along marvelously. And then, too, when Perseus looked sideways at him, out of the corner of his eyes, he seemed to see wings on the side of his head. Although, if he turned a full gaze, there were no such things to be perceived, but only an odd kind of cap. But at all events, the twisted staff was evidently a great convenience to Quicksilver, and enabled him to proceed so fast that Perseus, though a remarkably active young man, began to be out of breath. Here, cried Quicksilver, at last, for he knew well enough, rogue that he was, how hard Perseus found it to keep pace with him. Take you, the staff. For you needed a great deal more than I. There are there no better walkers than yourself in the island of Serapis? I could walk pretty well," said Perseus, glancing slyly at his companion's feet. "If I had only a pair of winged shoes." We must see about getting you a pair," answered Quicksilver. But the staff helped Perseus along so bravely that he no longer felt the slightest weariness. In fact, the stick seemed to be alive in his hand and to lend some of its life to Perseus. He and Quicksilver now walked onward at their ease, talking very sociably together, and Quicksilver told so many pleasant stories about his former adventures and how well his wits had served him on various occasions that Perseus began to think him a very wonderful person. He evidently knew the world and nobody is so charming to a young man as a friend who has that kind of knowledge. Perseus listened the more eagerly in the hope of brightening his own wits by what he had heard. At last he happened to recollect that Quicksilver had spoken of a sister who was to lend her assistance in the adventure which they were now bound upon. Where is she? he inquired. Shall we not meet her soon? All at the proper time, said his companion, but this sister of mine, you must understand, is quite a different sort of character than myself. She is very grave and prudent, seldom smiles, never laughs, and makes it a rule not to utter a word unless she has something particularly profound to say. Neither will she listen to any but the wisest conversation. Dear me, ejaculated Perseus, I shall be afraid to say a syllable. She is a very accomplished person, I assure you, continued Quicksilver, and has all the arts and sciences at her fingers' ends. And sure, she is so immoderately wise that many people call her wisdom personified. But, to tell you the truth, she has hardly vivacity enough for my taste and I think you would scarcely find her so pleasant a traveling companion as myself. She has her good points, nevertheless, and you will find the benefit of them in your encounter with the Gorgons. By this time it had grown quite dusk. They were now come to a very wild and deserted place, overgrown with shaggy bushes and so silent and solitary that nobody seemed ever to have dwelt or journeyed there. All was waste and desolate in the grey twilight, which grew every moment more obscure. Perseus looked about him, rather disconsolately, and asked Quicksilver whether they had a great deal farther to go. Hissed, hiss," whispered his companion, make no noise, this is just the time and place to meet the three grey women. Be careful that they do not see you before you see them, for, though they have but a single eye among the three, it is as sharp-sighted as half a dozen common eyes. But what must I do, asked Perseus, when we meet them? Quicksilver explained to Perseus how the three great women managed with their one eye. They were in the habit, it seems, of changing it from one to another, as if it had been a pair of spectacles, or, which would have suited them better, a quizzing glass. When one of the three had kept the eye, a certain time she took it out of the socket and passed it to one of her sisters, whose turn it might happen to be, and who immediately clapped it into her own head and enjoyed a peep at the visible world. Thus it will be easily understood that only one of the three great women could see while the other two were in utter darkness, and moreover, at the instant when the eye was passing from hand to hand, neither of the poor old ladies was able to see a wink. I have heard of a great many strange things in my day, and have witnessed not a few, but none, it seems to me, that compare with the oddity of these three grey women, all peeping through a single eye. So thought Perseus, likewise, and was so astonished that he almost fancied his companion was joking with him, and that there was no such old woman in the world. "'You will soon find, whether I tell the truth or no, observed Quicksilver. Hark! Hush! Hiss! Hiss! Dare they come now?' Perseus looked earnestly through the dusk of the evening And there, sure enough, at no great distance off, he described the three gray women. The light being so faint, he could not well make out what sort of figures they were. Only he discovered that they had long gray hair, and as they came nearer, he saw that two of them had but the empty socket of an eye in the middle of their foreheads. But in the middle of the third sister's forehead, there was a very large, bright, and piercing high, which sparkled like a great diamond in a ring. And so penetrating did it seem to be that Perseus could not help thinking, it must possess the gift of seeing in the darkest midnight just as perfectly as at noonday. The sight of the three persons' eyes was melted and collected into that single one. Thus the three old dames got along about as comfortably upon the whole, as if they could all see at once. She who chanced to have the eye in her forehead led the other two by the hands, peeping sharply about her all the while, insomuch that Perseus dreaded lest she would see right through the quick clump of bushes behind which he and Quicksilver had hidden themselves. My stars, it was positively terrible to be within reach of so very sharp an eye. But before they reached the clump of bushes, one of the three gray women spoke. Sister, Sister Scarecrow, cried she, you have had the eye long enough. It is my turn now. Let me keep it a moment longer, Sister Nightmare, answered Scarecrow. I thought I had a glimpse of something behind that thick bush. Well, and what of that? Retorted Nightmare peevishly, Can't I see into a thick bush as easily as yourself? The eye is mine as well as yours, and I know the use of it as well as you, or maybe a little better. I insist upon taking a peep immediately. But here the third sister, whose name was Shakejoint, began to complain and said that it was her turn to have the eye and that Scarecrow and Nightmare wanted to keep it all to themselves. To end the dispute, old damn Scarecrow took the eye out of her forehead and held it forth in her hand. Take it, one of you, cried she, and quit this foolish quarreling. For my part, I shall be glad of a little thick darkness. Take it quickly, however, or I must clap it into my own head again. Accordingly, both Nightmare and Shake Joint put out their hands, groping eagerly to snatch the eye out of the hand of Scarecrow. But being both alike blind, they could not easily find where Scarecrow's hand was, and Scarecrow, being just now as much in the dark as Shake Joint and Nightmare, could not at once meet either of their hands in order to put the eye into it. Thus, as you will see, with half an eye, my wise little auditors, these good old dames had fallen into a strange perplexity. But though the eye shone and glistened like a star, and a scarecrow held it out, yet the grey women caught not their least glimpse of its light, and were all three in utter darkness, from too impatient a desire to see. Quicksilver was so much tickled at beholding Shake-Join and Nightmare both groping for the eye And each finding fault with Scarecrow and one another, that he could scarcely help laughing aloud. Now is your time, he whispered to Perseus. Quick, quick, before they can clap the eye into either of their heads, rush out upon the old ladies and snatch it from Scarecrow's hand. In an instant, while the three great women were still scolding each other, Perseus leaped from behind the clump of bushes and made himself master of the prize. The marvelous eye, as he held it out in his hand, shone very brightly, and seemed to look upon his face with a knowing air, and an expression as if it would have winked had it been provided with a pair of eyelids for that purpose. But the gray women knew nothing of what had happened, and each supposing that one of their sisters was now in possession of the eye, they began to quarrel anew. At last, as Perseus did not wish to put these respectable dames to greater inconvenience than was really necessary, he thought it right to explain the matter. My good lady, said he, pray do not be angry with one another. If anybody is in fault, it is myself, for I have the honor to hold your very brilliant and excellent eye in my own hand. You, you have our eye, and who are you, screamed the three gray women, all in a breath, for they were terribly frightened, of course, at hearing a strange voice and discovering that their eyesight had gotten into the hands of they could not guess whom. Oh, what shall we do, sisters, what shall we do? We are all in the dark. Give us our eye, give us our one, precious, solitary eye. You have two of your own. Give us our eye. Tell them, whispered Quicksilver to Perseus, that they shall have the eye back as soon as they direct you where to find the nymphs who have the flying slippers, the magic wallet, and the helmet of darkness. My dear, good, admirable old ladies, said Perseus, addressing the grey women, there is no occasion for putting yourselves into such a fright. I am by no means a bad young man. You shall have back your eye, safe and sound, and as bright as ever, the moment you tell me where to find the nymphs. The nymphs? Goodness me, sisters, what nymphs does he mean? Screamed Scarecrow. There are a great many nymphs, people say. Some that go hunting in the woods, and some that live inside the trees and some that have a comfortable home and fountains of water. We know nothing at all about them. We are three unfortunate old souls that go wandering about in the dusk and never had but one eye amongst us, and that one you have stolen away. Oh, give it back, good stranger. Whoever you are, give it back. All this while, the three grey women were groping with their outstretched hands and trying their utmost to get hold of Perseus. But he took good care to keep out of their reach. My respectable dame, said he, for his mother had taught him to use always the greatest ability, I hold your eye fast in my hand and shall keep it safely for you until you please to tell me where to find the nymphs. The nymphs, I mean, who keep the enchanted wallet, the flying slippers, and the, what is it, the helmet of invisibility. Mercy on us, sisters. What is the young man talking about? exclaimed Scarecrow, Nightmare, and Shake-Joint, one to another, with great appearance of astonishment. A pair of flying slippers quoth he. His heels would quickly fly higher than his head if he were silly enough to put them on. And a helmet of invisibility. How could a helmet make him invisible unless it were big enough for him to hide under it? And an enchanted wallet. What sort of contrivance may that be, I wonder? No, no, good stranger. We can tell you nothing of these marvelous things. You have two eyes of your own, but we have but a single one amongst us three you can find out such wonders better than three blind old creatures like us. Perseus, hearing them talk in this way, began really to think that the grey women knew nothing of the matter. And as it grieved him to have put them to so much trouble, he was just on the point of restoring their eye and asking pardon for his rudeness and snatching it away. But Quicksilver caught his hand. Don't let them make a fool of you, said he. These three grey women are the only persons in the world that can tell you where to find the nymphs, and unless you get that information, you will never succeed in cutting off the head of Medusa with the snaky locks. Keep fast hold of the eye, and all will go well. As it turned out, Quicksilver was in the right. There are but few things that people prize so much as they do their eyesight, and the great women valued their single eye as highly as if it had been half a dozen, which was the number they ought to have had. Finding that there was no other way of recovering him, they at last told Perseus what he wanted to know. No sooner had they done so than he immediately, and with the utmost respect, clapped the eye into the vacant socket in one of their foreheads, thanked them for their kindness, and bade them farewell. Before the young man was out of hearing, however, they had got into a new dispute, because he happened to have given the eye to Scarecrow, who had already taken her turn of it when their trouble with Perseus commenced. It is greatly to be feared that the three grey women were very much in the habit of disturbing their mutual harmony by bickerings of this sort which was more the pity as they could not conveniently do without one another and were evidently intended to be inseparable companions. As a general rule, I would advise all people, whether sisters or brothers, old or young, who chance to have but one eye amongst them to cultivate forbearance and not all insist upon peeping through it at once. Quicksilver and Perseus In the meantime, were making the best of their way in quest of the nymphs. The old dames had given them such particular directions that they were not long in finding them out. They proved to be very different persons from Nightmare, Shakejoint, and Scarecrow, for instead of being old, they were young and beautiful, and instead of one eye amongst the sisterhood, each nymph had two exceedingly bright eyes of their own with which she looked very kindly at Perseus. They seemed to be acquainted with Quicksilver, and when he told them the adventure which Perseus had undertaken, they made no difficulty about giving him the valuable articles that were in their custody. In the first place, they brought out what appeared to be a small purse, made of deerskin, and curiously embroidered, and bade him be sure and keep it safe. This was the magic wallet, The nymphs next produce a pair of shoes or slippers or sandals with a nice little pair of wings at the heel of each. Put them on, Perseus, said Quicksilver. You will find yourself as light-heeled as you can desire for the remainder of your journey. So Perseus proceeded to put one of the slippers on while he laid the other on the ground by his side. Unexpectedly, however, This other slipper spread its wings, fluttered off the ground and would probably have flown away if Quicksilver had not made a leap and luckily caught it in the air. Be more careful, said he, as he gave it back to Perseus. It would frighten the birds up aloft if they should see a flying slipper amongst them. When Perseus had got on both of these wonderful slippers, he was altogether too buoyant to tread on earth. Making a step or two, lo and behold, upward he popped into the air, high above the heads of Quicksilver and the nymphs, and found it very difficult to clamber down again. Wing slippers, and all such high-flying contrivances are seldom quite easy to manage until one grows a little accustomed to them. Quicksilver laughed at his companion's involuntary activity. And told him that he must not be in so desperate a hurry, but must wait for the invisible helmet. The good-natured nymphs had the helmet, with its dark tuft of waving plumes, all in readiness to put upon his head. And now there happened about as wonderful an incident as anything that I have yet told you. The instant before the helmet was put on, there stood Perseus, a beautiful young man with golden ringlets and rosy cheeks, the crooked sword by his side and the brightly polished seal upon his arm, a figure that seemed all made up of courage, sprightliness, and glorious light. But when the helmet had descended over his white brow, there was no longer any Perseus to be seen, nothing but empty air. Even the helmet that covered him with its invisibility had vanished. "'Where are you, Perseus?' asked Quicksilver. "'Why, here, to be sure,' answered Perseus, very quietly, "'although his voice seemed to come out of the transparent atmosphere. "'Just where I was a moment ago. Don't you see me?' "'No, indeed,' answered his friend. "'You are hidden under the helmet. "'But if I cannot see you, neither can the Gorgons. "'Follow me, therefore,' and we will try your dexterity in using the wing slippers. With these words, Quicksilver's cap spread its wings, as if his head were about to fly away from his shoulders, but his whole figure rose lightly into the air, and Perseus followed. By the time they had ascended a few hundred feet, the young man began to feel what a delightful thing it was to leave the dull earth so far behind him to be able to flit about like a bird. It was now deep night. Perseus looked upward and saw the round, bright, silvery moon, and thought that he should desire nothing better than to soar up thither and spend his life there. Then he looked downward again and saw the earth, with its seas and lakes and the silver courses of its rivers and its snowy mountain peaks, and the breath of its fields, and the dark cluster of woods, and its cities of white marble, and with the moonshine sleeping over the whole scene, it was as beautiful as the moon or any star could be. And among other objects he saw the island of Seraphis, where his dear mother was. Sometimes he and Quicksilver approached a cloud that at a distance looked as if it were made of fleecy silver, although when they plunged into it, they found themselves chilled and moistened with gray mist. So swift was their flight, however, that in an instant they emerged from the cloud into the moonlight again. Once a high-soaring eagle flew right against the invisible Perseus. The bravest sights were the meteors that gleamed suddenly out, as if a bonfire had been kindled in the sky, and made the moonshine pale for as much as a hundred miles around them. As the two companions flew onward, Perseus fancied that he could hear the rustle of a garment close by his side, and it was on the side opposite to the one where he beheld Quicksilver, yet only Quicksilver was visible. Whose garment is this? inquired Perseus. ...that keeps rustling close beside me in the breeze. Oh, it is my sister's,' answered Quicksilver. "'She is coming along with us, as I told you she would. "'We could do nothing without the help of my sister. "'You have no idea how wise she is. "'She has such eyes, too. "'Why, she can see you at this moment, "'just as distinctly as if you were not invisible.' and I'll venture to say she'll be the first to discover the Gorgons. By this time, in their swift voyage through the air, they had come within sight of the great ocean and were soon flying over it. Far beneath them the waves tossed themselves tumultuously in mid-sea, or rolled a white surf line upon the long beaches, or foamed against the rocky cliffs with a roar that was thunderous in the lower world, although it became a gentle murmur, like the voice of a baby half asleep before it reached the ears of Perseus. Just then a voice spoke in the air close by him. It seemed to be a woman's voice, and was melodious, though not exactly in what might be called sweet, but grave and mild. Perseus said the voice, There are the gorgons. Where, exclaimed Perseus, I cannot see them. On the shore of that island beneath you, replied the voice, a pebble dropped from your hand would strike in the midst of them. I told you she would be the first to discover them, said Quicksilver to Perseus, and there they are. Straight downward two or three thousand feet below him, Perseus perceived a small island with the sea breaking into white foam all around its rocky shore except on one side where there was a beach of snowy sand. He descended toward it and looking earnestly at a cluster or a heap of brightness at the foot of the precipice of black rocks behold, there were the terrible gorgons. They lay fast asleep Soothed by the thunder of the sea, for it required a tomo that would have deafened everybody else to lull such fierce creatures into slumber. The moonlight glistened on their steely scales, and on their golden wings which drooped idly over the sand. Their brazen claws, horrible to look at, were thrust out and clutched the wave-beaten fragments of rock while the sleeping gorgons dreamed of tearing some poor mortal all to pieces. The snakes that served them instead of their hair seemed likewise to be asleep, although now and then would writhe, and lift its head and thrust out its forked tongue, emitting a drowsy hiss, and then let itself subside among its sister snakes. The gorgons were more like an awful, gigantic kind of insect, immense gold-winged beetles or dragonflies or things of that sort at once ugly and beautiful then, like anything else only that they were a thousand and a million times as big and with all this, there was something partly human about them too luckily for Perseus, their faces were completely hidden from him by the posture in which they lay For had he but looked one instant at them, he would have fallen heavily out of the air, an image of senseless stone. Now, whispered Quicksilver, as he hovered by the side of Perseus, now is your time to do the deed. Be quick, for if one of the Gorgons should awake, you are too late. Which shall I strike at, asked Perseus, drawing his sword and descending a little lower they all three look alike all three have snaky locks which of the three is Medusa it must be understood that Medusa was the only one of these dragon monsters whose head Perseus could possibly cut off as for the other two let him have the sharpest sword that was ever forged and he might have hacked away by the hour together without doing them the least harm be cautious, said the calm voice which had spoken to him. One of the Gorgons is stirring in her sleep and is just about to turn over. That is Medusa. Do not look at her. The sight would turn you to stone. Look at the reflection of her face and figure in the bright mirror of your shield. Perseus now understood Quicksilver's motive for so earnestly exhorting him to polish his shield. In its surface, he could safely look at the reflection of the Gorgon's face. And there it was, that terrible countenance, mirrored in the brightness of the shield, with the moonlight falling over it and displaying all its horror. The snakes, whose venomous natures could not altogether sleep, kept twisting themselves over the forehead. It was the fiercest and most horrible face that ever was seen or imagined and yet with a strange, fearful, and savage kind of beauty to it. The eyes were closed, and the gorgon was still in a deep slumber, but there was an unquiet expression disturbing her features, as if the monster was troubled with an ugly dream. She gnashed her white tusks and dug into the sand with her brazen claws. The snakes, too, seemed to feel the medusa's dream and to be made more restless by it. They twined themselves into tumultuous knots, writhed fiercely and uplifted a hundred hissing heads without opening their eyes. Now, now, whispered Quicksilver, who was growing impatient, make a dash at the monster. But be calm, said the grave, melodious voice at the young man's side. Look in your shield as you fly downward." and take care that you do not miss your first stroke. Perseus flew cautiously downward, still keeping his eyes on Medusa's face as reflected in his shield. The nearer he came, the more terrible did the snaky, visage, and metallic body of the monster grow. At last, when he found himself hovering over her with an arm's length, Perseus uplifted his sword, while at the same instant, each separate snake upon the gorgon's head stretched threateningly upward, and Medusa unclosed her eyes. But she awoke too late. The sword was sharp, the stroke fell like a lightning flash, and the head of the wicked Medusa tumbled from her body. Admirably done, cried Quicksilver, make haste. "'and clap the head into your magic wallet. "'To the astonishment of Perseus, "'the small embroidered wallet, "'which he had hung about his neck, "'and which had hitherto been no bigger than a purse, "'grew all at once large enough to contain Medusa's head. "'As quick as thought, he snatched it up, "'with the snake still writhing upon it, "'and thrust it in. "'Your task is done,' said the calm voice. Now fly, for the other gorgons will do their utmost to take vengeance for Medusa's death. It was indeed necessary to take flight, for Perseus had not done the deed so quietly, but that the clash of his sword, and the hissing of the snakes, and the thump of Medusa's head as it tumbled upon the sea-beaten sand, awoke the two other monsters. There they sat for an instant, sleepily rubbing their eyes with their brazen fingers, while all the snakes in their heads reared themselves on end with surprise, and with venomous malice against they knew not what. But when the gorgons saw the scaly carcass of Medusa, headless, and her golden wings all ruffled and half spread out in the sand, it was really awful to hear what yells and screeches they set up. And then the snakes, They sent forth a hundredfold hiss with one consent. Medusa's snakes answered them out of the magic wallet. No sooner were the gorgons broad awake than they hurtled upward into the air, brandishing their brass talons, gnashing their horrible tusks, and flapping their huge wings so wildly that some of the golden feathers were shaken out and floated down upon the shore. And there, perhaps, those very feathers lie scattered till this day. Up rose the gorgons, as I tell you, staring horribly about in hopes of turning somebody to stone. Had Perseus looked them in the face, or had he fallen into their clutches, his poor mother would never have kissed her boy again. But he took good care to turn his eyes another way, and as he wore the helmet of invisibility, the gorgons knew not what direction to follow him, nor did he fail to make the best use of the winged slippers by soaring upward a perpendicular mile or so. At that height, when the screams of these abominable creatures sounded faintly beneath him, he made a straight course for the island of the Serapis in order to carry Medusa's head to King Polydectes. I have no time to tell you of several marvelous things that befell Perseus on his way homeward, such as his killing a hideous sea monster, just as it was on the point of devouring a beautiful maiden, nor how he changed an enormous giant into a mountain of stone, merely by showing him the head of the gorgon. If you doubt this latter story, you may make a voyage to Africa, someday or another, and see the very mountain which is still known by the ancient giant's name. Finally, our brave Perseus arrived at the island, where he expected to see his dear mother. But during his absence, the wicked king had treated Danae so very ill that she was compelled to make her escape and had taken refuge in a temple where some good old priests were extremely kind to her. These praiseworthy priests and the kind-hearted fishermen who had first shown hospitality to Danae and little Perseus when he found them afloat in the chest seemed to have been the only person on the island who cared about doing right. All the rest of the people, as well as King Polydectes himself, were remarkably ill-behaved and deserved no better destiny than that which was now to happen. Not finding his mother at home, Perseus went straight to the palace and was immediately ushered into the presence of the king. Polydectes was by no means rejoiced to see him, for he had felt almost certain in his own evil mind that the Gorgons would have torn the poor young man to pieces and have eaten him up out of the way. However, seeing him safely return, he put the best face he could upon the matter and asked Perseus how he had succeeded. "'Have you performed your promise?' inquired he. "'Have you brought me the head of Medusa with the snaky locks? "'If not, young man, it will cost you dear, "'for I must have a bridal present for the beautiful Princess Hippodamia, "'and there is nothing else that she would admire so much.' "'Yes, please, your majesty,' answered Perseus in a quiet way. As if it were no very wonderful deed for such a young man as he to perform. I have brought you the Gorgon's head, snaky locks and all. Indeed, pray let me see it, quoth King Palladectes. It must be a very curious spectacle, if all that travelers tell about it be true. Your Majesty is in the right, replied Perseus. It really is an object that will be pretty certain to fix the regards of all who look at it. And if your majesty think fit, I would suggest that a holiday be proclaimed, that all your majesty's subjects be summoned to behold this wonderful curiosity. Few of them, I imagine, have seen a gorgon's head before, and perhaps never may again. The king well knew that his subjects were an idle set of reprobates, and very fond of sightseeing, as idle persons usually are. So he took the young man's advice, and sent out heralds and messengers in all directions to blow the trumpet at the street corners, and in the marketplaces, and wherever two roads met, and summon everybody to court. Thither accordingly came a great multitude of good-for-nothing vagabonds, all of whom, out of pure love of mischief, would have been glad if Perseus had met with some ill hap in his encounter with the Gorgons. If there were any better people in the island, as I really hope there may have been, although the story tells nothing about any such, they stayed quietly at home, minding their business and taking care of their little children. Most of the inhabitants, at all events, ran as fast as they could to the palace and shoved and pushed and elbowed one another in their eagerness to get near a balcony on which Perseus showed himself holding the embroidered wallet in his hand. On a platform, within full view of the balcony, sat the mighty King Polydectes amid his evil counselors and with his flattering courtiers in a semicircle round about him. Monarch, counselors, courtiers, and subjects, all gazed eagerly towards Perseus. Show us the head, show us the head, shouted the people, and there was a fierceness in their cry, as if they would tear Perseus to pieces, unless he should satisfy them with what he had to show. Show us the head of Medusa, with the snaky locks. A feeling of sorrow and pity came over the youthful Perseus. "'Oh, King Polydectes,' cried he, "'and ye many people, "'I am very loath to show you the gorgon's head.' "'Ah, the villain and coward,' yelled the people more fiercely than before. "'He is making a game of us. "'He has no gorgon's head. "'Show us the head if you have it. "'We will take your own head for a football.' Evil counselors whispered bad advice in the king's ear. The courtiers murmured, with one instant, that Perseus had shown disrespect to their loyal lord and master, and the great king, Polydectes himself, waved his hand and ordered him with the stern, deep voice of authority, on his peril, to produce the head. Show me the gorgon's head, or I will cut off your own. And Perseus sighed. This instant, repeated Polydectes, or you die. Behold it then, cried Perseus in a voice like the blast of a trumpet. And suddenly, holding up the head, not an eyelid had time to wink before the wicked king Polydectes, his evil counselors, and all his fierce subjects were no longer anything but mere images of a monarch and his people they were all fixed forever in the look and attitude of that moment at the first glimpse of the terrible head of Medusa they whitened into marble and Perseus thrust the head back into his wallet and went to tell his dear mother that she need no longer be afraid of the wicked king Polydectes